Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like civics and government, the law, anthropology, and archaeology. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Sean Graham. Dr. Graham is a professor at Carleton University where he teaches digital archaeology and digital humanities. Recent work includes studying the online trade in human remains, developing graph-theoretic representations of historic events, and publishing two books, Failing Gloriously and An Enchantment of Digital Archaeology. He is the founder and editor of the open access journal Apoesin, a journal for creative engagement in history and archaeology. Thank you so much for talking about your work, and I'm realizing we could probably talk all day long, and I'd still have questions, but just because we've brought it up a couple of times, I wanted to um, start by talking about morality and ethics and building stories that, you know, when you give your golems tongues, that they're speaking authentically from the peoples that you're trying to recreate. And by Gollum, we mean a clay robot. <laughs> For those that don't know, we don't mean Lord of the Rings. We mean a clay robot. Right, not Smeagol. But you talk a little bit about how, as a world builder, you build empathy. And does that translate into more empathetic stories? Or is that teachable? Yeah, that's probably the hardest thing right there. I mean, when I started messing around with this stuff, I used to, tongue-in-cheek, I'd call them zombies because I wasn't entirely certain that what I was doing counted as archaeology when I started doing this. I would call them zombies, right, because you would give them stuff and they'd go out and do stuff. And it's easy to lose sight that there is a humanity underpinning all of this stuff when you think of them like that. And then when you dig into the term zombie and the history of it, and you realize that it's about compelled labor after death, the fear of compelled labor after death, the, the idea that your body is not your own and that somebody else can extract the value from it, that puts a completely different spin on things, especially when you think about how archaeology has a really bad history with going into a place, a community, a people, and a very extractive process of knowledge taking never to share, never to return. And people make their careers out of this, right? So calling them zombies, first tongue-in-cheek, and then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that wasn't really a good way of thinking about it. You think about golems instead, these clay robots. You've got the golem of Prague, who the rabbi creates by giving him the names of God, and that animates him to protect the community. That's a more interesting metaphor. I'm a big fan of Terry Pratchett. When you think about the way that golems in Terry Pratchett, they are tools that can walk around and eventually they become liberated and they're given a voice and they turn out to be intensely moral creatures that think about and ruminate on what is right and what is wrong all the time and will follow duly constituted rules unless they feel otherwise. I use these kinds of stories and ideas to just get my students thinking about the connection between how we objectify things in order to study them, and that these are not objects, that these are belongings, that these are things that take on meaning because they're in some kind of a relationship with a human, with another person. Another good Terry Project, we only become human through each other. 
we learn what it is to be human through our interactions with other people. And when we're doing this in simulation, that kind of thinking has to always be happening because otherwise the people of the past, we don't do justice to them. Now, I wasn't trained to think like this. I mean, I did Roman archaeology. I was coming out of an art history background, a classics background. Coming back to Canada after doing my graduate work overseas and then trying to make a living as an archaeologist who has no business doing archaeology in Canada because it's a very different thing. And it is in a very different context. It was a really quite a humbling experience. And so I continued with the agent modeling, thinking, who are these people? They're digital, I can create, I can destroy, I can wipe the slate clean and start again. But ultimately, I'm trying to understand other people. And in a way, you got to like people some way in order to want to study them. Or appreciate them or... Yeah, sometimes we like them at a distance because humans are awful. Do you see what I mean? I think as you've pointed out, archaeology in North America is really different than archaeology in Europe or elsewhere in the world where it's largely white people doing work on indigenous sites. And what you've come up against it, sort of these boundaries doing agent modeling for North American sites where you realize maybe you don't have enough information about the impact of kinship and those kinds of relationships to be able to model that. Or if you're doing archaeogaming and you have a character who's like a token indigenous person but is programmed to act like a colonizer, putting those words in their mouths, you know, or not, or saying we've hit our limits. The Civilization franchise includes Chief Poundmaker as a playable character, but the words put through his mouth are not words that he or his nation would subscribe to. And there's some stories on the CBC about this. But I mean, you mentioned in the other session about when we put people into the simulation of ancestral Puebloan peoples. So that particular model comes as a demo model in the NetLogo suite, which was why we used it, because it was there. But if I was doing serious archaeological research and I was building a model that was related to the archaeology of First Nations people in Canada and, you know, something as complex as kinship, I have no business doing that. This is where I would want to go to the communities that I'm interested in and have them in the driver's seat about what gets modeled and what doesn't. And not modeling is a perfectly valid and possible outcome of this sort of thing. I think it's better research full stop when you do it in conjunction because imposing it from on high from outside with all of my training and background, which I'm a Roman archaeologist for crying out loud. I mean, you can't get more imperial and extractive than the friggin' Romans. And that's a function of where I studied. Semper ubi sub ubi. The other thing is too, when we do digital work or we're releasing things onto the internet and we're putting it out there, we have to really think hard about the potential harms and unintended outcomes of this, right? I can imagine making a model and releasing it into the world and then have white nationalists or Christo-fascists or whatever you want to call them, take that model and pervert its use to abuse it to make some kind of other argument. They don't do that so much right now because they don't really know what we do, but you see them doing it with things like polychrome ancient statuary. What does that even mean? Polychrome just means multicolored. The Romans were very nouveau riche, very garish. They liked bright colors. Stuff was painted. 
bright yellows, bright pinks, statues were painted, buildings were painted, white marble, you didn't leave white marble. Why do we like white marble? Because a guy in the 19th century liked the lily white skin of boys. And so there's a group in California who worked with uh, indigenous groups and the University of Washington to create a content management system for indigenous material culture called Mukutu. And it is a content management system for working with cultural heritage materials of indigenous people. And it literally builds into the code the idea that there are levels of knowledge in a community, that things are not necessarily meant to be known by all people, that your role in the community makes a difference to what materials you can have access to and how you can see them and so on. Whereas if you look at a lot of the other systems that are out there for putting cultural heritage material online, they tend to take as a given that everything goes out that there aren't levels of access, that anything that's out there can be taken and reused, right? So one literally encodes an indigenous way of seeing the world, and the other one literally encodes a Western way of seeing the world. When we make stuff available online, the underlying technologies that even make that possible, so we're not even talking agent simulations anymore, we're talking about the way the web works, can have a lot of these unintended consequences as well sort of making me think you're talking about sort of this disconnect between who's doing the archaeology and the communities where the archaeology is being done or the communities that might have a relationship with the subject of the archaeological investigations. Have there been opportunities in your work to engage with First Nation communities or Indigenous students? To me, the agency of being able to say, oh, you know, I'm going to take a model and I'm going to make this in my voice. I have this agency now as a builder of these small worlds where I can make an Indigenous world or I can make agents that are operating from an Indigenous perspective. Has that happened? I work with a few Indigenous folks on projects related to online discourses and how Indigenous voices are heard or are not heard or are subject to hate or abuse. Something that's a little bit more closer to what we've already been talking to and which I've had nothing to do with at all. Cook Inlet Tribal Council in Alaska developed a game in conjunction with some developers, but where the tribal council was in the driver's seat the whole way. They went through this process, and sometimes things didn't really work out well, and other times they did, but there's a wonderful paper about it in a book called The Immersive Pass, which comes from the Value Foundation from the University of Leiden. So there are opportunities here where we can say to people, I'm ready to listen, and when you want to talk to me, I'm ready to shut up. This is actually a really nice way to drift into my question while we close out this segment. You talked about how if you're going to try to take some of these approaches in a way that is not colonialist, extractive, however you want to phrase it, you know, and you talked about how the way to do that is to go to the communities, talk about how they want to tell these stories, what their input would be into these kinds of simulations or games. Can you actually point to like a real world example of where maybe you did that or one of your colleagues did that, where you actually created one of these simulations or games, but after input from the communities in hand? Never Alone is definitely a success story. 
to your mind, what is it that made it work in those ways? Well, some of what makes Never Alone work is it's framed around the storytelling of the Inuit people of this community. You know, aside from the game itself, which is a lovely little game, but it was definitely that kind of open-hearted collaboration that enabled hard conversations, meaningful conversations, and that's always meant that their perspective was the key critical element. When you do digital stuff, it'll always be, oh, well, it would be easier if it was like this, or it'd be easier if we did that, or this is what game players expect, but that wasn't the thing. It wasn't about what game players expect. Game players often don't know what to expect. That's not what should be in the driver's seat. Sean, your work and the way that you think about your work, it's just remarkable. And it's just been an absolute delight speaking with you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to share this with you. And if you would like more information about Sean and his work, you can visit electricarchaeology.ca. And that's Electric Archaeology, A-R-C-H-A-E. O-L-O-G-Y dot C-A. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum.